This week on Pop Culture Confidential, veteran journalist and New York Times chief White House correspondent Peter Baker talks about reporting on the last four presidents, the unique challenges of covering the Trump administration, and his new book, Obama, The Call of History. Welcome back to Pop Culture Confidential. I'm Christina Yerling-Biro. Thanks so much for joining us again. This week, I'm very honored to speak with Peter Baker, the chief White House correspondent for the New York Times. During his career, he's covered four presidents, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and now the Trump White House. Before joining the Times, Peter Baker spent 20 years at the Washington Post, including four years as Moscow bureau chief. His wife, Susan Glasser, is the chief international affairs columnist at Politico, so there must be some very interesting dinner conversation there. His new book is Obama, The Call of History, which also includes some incredible photography from the New York Times. And for those of you listening right now, we're recording this a few days before it airs, so considering the quick changes coming out of the White House these days, some things may be over even before they start. Mr. Peter Baker, thank you so much for joining us, for taking the time, which must be so limited these days. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's good to talk to you. I'd like to start with a recent article published in the New York Times about President Trump's compulsive lying, about phone calls Trump said he made, but the White House now says didn't happen. How do you, as journalists, maneuver this? You are a team of six reporters covering the White House. Have you discuss sort of in a broader sense how to cover a president who you even write articles about is so blatantly lying? Well, you know, look, every president and every politician uh, mangles the truth at times. Uh, it's uh, either intentionally or otherwise. It's our job to fact check them and to help the readers understand what the context is and what the, you know, the fuller picture is. This happens to be a president who does it more often than most. And I, and I, and either intentionally or not, so we have, in fact, you know, uh, increased our uh, resources on fact-checking, uh, and we've made a real point of trying to help readers sort through what's true and what's not. It is a challenge, and you can't accept anything at face value from, from any president, but uh, uh, this is one who uh, uh, has been a particular challenge, I think. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that way with sort of his entire administration that you're talking to? Well, it depends on the person. You know, each person, you develop a sense of their... Uh, reliability or not. It depends on, on, you know, any history you might have as a reporter with them. If you, if you've known them for years and you've built up a relationship where you, you know, you can trust what they tell you, that's one thing. If, if there's, if, if there's somebody who has uh, misled you in the past or, or given you bad information, uh, then you, you know, you act accordingly. You, you, you treat that uh, with the degree of skepticism that it deserves. What about in an interview situation? Just about 10 days ago, you and your colleagues at the Times, Maggie Haberman, Michael Schmidt, and yourself got an exclusive interview with President Trump. How do you prepare for an interview with this president? Well, you know, any interview with a president, you want to go in with a list of what you want to ask. You can't just sort of do it on the fly. Uh, this is a very different president to interview, though. I've, I've interviewed seven over the years, and this one is very different. And most other presidents, they... They stick very close to the script. They stick to their talking points. And your challenge as an interviewer is to get them to say something new or fresh or candid, something that gets them, that makes news, that, that, that tells us something we didn't know. Um, with this president, that's not so much of a challenge. He's, he's more than willing to say what he thinks uh, and even things that his own staff wishes he wouldn't say. But he's very open 
about uh, giving an answer that he uh, uh, that might not be politic or it might not be, you know, according to the script that they had developed that day. And that makes for a different kind of interview. You know, in this case, he, he said that he wouldn't have hired, he wouldn't have appointed his own attorney general if he had known that he was going to recuse himself on the Russia investigation. So he, that was pretty striking. We didn't think he was going to say something like that. He also, you know, accused the former FBI director, Jim Comey, of basically uh, trying to leverage compromising information against the president to keep his job. And he and he also, you know, skirted around this question of whether he might even fire Robert Mueller, the special counsel. So these are all, you know, big, big things uh, that he put out there in the interview. And, and it wasn't that we were dragging it out of him. He was more than willing to say them. And, and what does that say about him and his relationship to the press, that he can sit there and just sort of say that unfiltered? Well, you know, it's interesting. He, 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 in the course of our interview, he did from time to time go off the record. So it's not that he's not aware that what he's saying might be controversial or provocative because he does therefore put other things off the record that he thinks might be, uh, you know, bad for him to be quoted as saying. So uh, clearly he's aware of what he's saying. Clearly he intends for what he's saying to be out there and he intends for it to have an impact. Now, why did he want to put Jeff Sessions back on his heels? I don't know. I mean, obviously I think taking it at face value, I do think he's still very sore about this recusal. But it's been four or five months since then. So why now? Why would he do it so publicly? Why would he choose to, you know, put his own attorney general on the defensive like that? That's still an interesting question. But do you think when he's sitting there with the three of you that he's just spontaneously saying these things? Or has he actually thought about, I am going to tell them these things? It's a good question. I think that uh, it's probably a mix of both. I think that he he does tend to speak in some ways of a stream of consciousness, um, you know, I don't know that he went into the interview with a specific strategy. I, I don't think he says anything he doesn't want to say. Uh, but whether, you know, I, I don't know if he said, okay, I'm going to use this interview to get this message across or not. Right. He was aware that what he said was controversial or would be news. He, he clearly knew that. And that was something he, uh, you know, he didn't have a problem with. He, he didn't try to take it back. He didn't try to say, well, don't report this or put this off the record. He was very aware that what he said about his attorney general would be reported and that it would be seen as is a pretty uh, uh, big deal. Which is something I'm sure a lot of readers sort of appreciate, that he has that. One of the things his supporters do like about him is that he seems to be bracingly candid. Now, again, we talked earlier about his his fidelity to facts, <laughs> but they do like that he's out there saying what he thinks and, and that he's willing to say things that other politicians aren't, that he is the anti-PC, no political correctness politician. Uh, you know, there's... For his supporters who feel that Washington has kind of gotten out of touch with them, who feel like the people here in both parties can be elitist and removed, Donald Trump seems like sort of the antidote to that. And so, you know, he 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 believes he got to the White House with this style and he's not going to listen to, too much to, to aides who try to ratchet him back. Yeah, because that's interesting. I read that you have noted that he's more easily accessible than, say, Obama, that he, Trump will call you back. He doesn't have as many gatekeepers sitting in on interviews and things like that. Look, he likes to engage. You know, he obviously uh, enjoys media bashing. No question. You know, he, he gets up. <laughs> really? And, yeah. And, you know, uh, fake news this and failing New York Times that. But, you know, that's fine. Whatever. Name calling is not a big deal. Uh, you know, at the same time, he likes to engage us. So it's a real love-hate kind of thing, I guess, where he, you know, gets mad about coverage, but he can't quite give up 
trying to shape his uh, his his story. Right. It almost seems like an, an, a game, an entertaining thing for him to go back and forth. He's a reality show television, and then you know, and and, and reality show thrives on surprises and and suspense and. Uh, who's on the island and who's off the island. And he, he provides a lot of that sort of uh, narrative at times. In your book, you write how President Obama could inspire huge crowds, stadiums of people, but he was very different behind the scenes. How so? Yeah, that's true. He, it's, it's interesting, right? Because he, he could rouse 80,000 people sitting in an arena uh, to tears uh, in some cases. And yet in smaller groups, he... Especially once he became president, he would often turn very professorial, even pedantic at times. He, he, he sometimes struck some people as lecturing. Now, that may be unfair. He was a very smart guy, intellectual guy. He liked to give thoughtful, smart, long answers to questions. But it didn't have the same sort of passion-arousing uh, quality that the big speeches of his campaign did. And I think a lot, you know, people would put a lot on him. They assumed he was something that they wanted him to be more than – what he really was because we didn't know him. He was new to the national scene and everybody sort of like uh, tried to figure out what, you know, what his story was. And the truth is, uh, uh, you know, it was more complicated than, the, than the, the narratives that a lot of people had. Was President Obama in some ways even more difficult to interview than President Trump? Well, you know, he wasn't as uh, uh, forthcoming, let's put it that way, right? If you asked him, are you mad at your attorney general? Uh, he would have said no, whether he was or not. You know, that's just that's just what he would have done. He never would have uh, said that out loud. Um, and so, in that sense, you know, we have a bigger window, a, a open, a more open window on what this president is thinking and his mindset through his interviews and his speeches and his Twitter feed than almost any politician in our modern times. I th I think mm -hmm. uh, you know, presidents like Obama and Bush and Clinton. We, we try to read tea leaves. They said this instead of that. Aha, they used this word or that word. They didn't repeat this. It must mean that he or she, eventually she is thinking this. Well, there's no need to guess with, 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 with President Trump. <laughs> right. He just tells you. He tells you what he's thinking. Mm. Yeah, because that's interesting. You have covered four presidents. I guess that means you've attended White House press briefings for, what, 21 years now? Longer than I'd like to think. Longer than I'd like to think. Um, could you sort of between the four of them, what is the main difference in the communication and in, in the White House press briefing between the four, would you say? Um, well, I mean, again, President Trump is more freewheeling. It's more, um, uh, he's willing to be in your face. It's often accusatory toward the reporters who he's talking with. At the same time, he then tries to sort of uh, flatter them by, you know, explaining how you know, important they are, their ratings are, what have you. He kind of goes back and forth. You know, with President Obama, it was it was like attending a college lecture. You know, you were you were <laughs> he was there to instruct you, and you were not to interrupt, and you were to wait until he's finished with his, you know, five paragraph answer. And then if you got a follow up, you know, it was hard to pin him down on something that he didn't want to be pinned down on. He was very good at at, at evading direct questions when he wanted to be, but he gave long and thoughtful answers and and. Uh, uh, we didn't get that many questions in as a result. Uh, President Bush was a little bit um, more concise. He was uh, more to the point. He didn't tend to ramble very often, and he didn't tend to uh, elaborate on things beyond what uh, he wanted to say. He was pretty disciplined about what he wanted to say most of the time. President Clinton, he liked to kind of wander around a little bit, too. He had a sort of intellectual 
curiosity that took him in different places, and he would sort of raise some sort of interesting anecdote or facts fact set that he had learned about recently with you to to sort of make larger points. And um, uh, it was always fascinating because his mind worked in a very interesting way. Uh, but it was also a challenge to kind of keep him uh, on subject and get him to say something that would be uh, that would be newsy. Yeah. You covered uh, Clinton's impeachment. You broke several stories and, and they were not particularly happy with you all the time either. But how did their relationship with you turn out during sort of the Hillary campaign? Yeah, that's a good question. It's uh, they, they, they're definitely not happy with me during the uh the Lewinsky investigation and the impeachment that followed. A lot of the stories that we wrote were very, very hard to read. I think if you were a member of this family, very personal at times, very uh, revealing and very uh, uh, unhappy. But, um, uh, you know, they're professionals. I think that uh, I hope that they think that uh, even though they didn't like the stories, that I was fair. And then I gave them a chance to tell their side of things. And uh, so by the time the 08 campaign and the 2016 campaign came around, I, I knew, you know, a lot of the people around uh, Hillary Clinton and knew them well. And uh, and I think, they, you know, we got along professionally. I didn't cover the campaigns full time or anything, but I would dip in and out on the 08 campaign at least. And, um, you know, I think professionals deal with you in a professional way. Would you say that Trump, does not deal with you that way. He, you're the failing New York Times. <laughs> no, I don't think. I know I don't take it personally. He's never he's never done or said anything personal uh, to me. I, he has some of my colleagues though, uh, and so you know it, it depends. Um, I, the failing New York Times stuff I don't take seriously. I mean the truth is not only are we not failing, we're doing better than ever. We have uh, something like four hundred thousand more paying subscribers than we did at the beginning of the year. Our, our revenues are up nine percent. More people are reading the New York Times in the entire history of the newspaper. So uh, I don't take all that really seriously. It's just uh, it's just uh, for the purpose of, you know, uh, public messaging. Right. But um, I think it was you said something interesting in another interview. You said that there used to be a time sort of where people were getting more of the the original facts in the story from the same place, from the front page of a newspaper, for example. Then you could have wildly different opinions on it, but uh, you were sort of getting the original story somehow. Now everyone is getting their facts, which I sort of use lightly, on their own feeds. They're catered to them um, politically. How does this impact your work? Well, I think it does because, in fact, you know, it's in the old days, there was sort of a common understanding of what the facts were before we then started to argue about them. Right. Now, because of the proliferation of media, because of what you said, because the atomization of media, it's a good thing. There are more sources of information than ever before, but these are not all built equally. And sometimes you find yourself trying to figure out as a reporter what's real and what's not. And so somebody is saying this to you, but do they actually know that or is that just from some suspect, uh, you know, internet uh, – uh, source that we, we, nobody should rely on, and it, it, it's it's tricky, and it's and you don't want to miss a good story, but you also don't want to buy into something that's just uh, uh, it's just nonsense. And there's a lot of nonsense out there these days. But what do you think that is doing to the voters, to the people? I know I think it's hard for voters. I mean, because voters have better things in their lives to do than to try to sift through what's real and what's not. You know, they've got. You know, they've got their kids to get to school and their jobs to get to and their bills to pay and, and, and their houses to, to you know, clean and so forth. The last thing they need is to try to figure out, OK, is this website real? What about this website? This one says this and that one says the other thing. 
So what we try to do is, is, is hope that they look to, you know, the legacy media like the New York Times and realize that there's a reason why we have something to offer here, that we can, in fact, help them make sense of all this through rigorous reporting and standards that we've been taking to the news business for literally more than a century. Because a lot of people are sort of seeking out the news they want too. I mean, they they sort of are drawn to that as well to get those yeah. effects for their agenda. That's right. And you know, some people are never going to believe you because your your stories don't comport to their your their point of view, whether it be left or right or whatever. Right. And that's fine. That's their choice. But what we try to do is offer people, uh, at least in the news pages, uh, you know, a, a, a fact based, uh, you know, neutral uh, explanation and context. So they can help put things they're hearing into the right perspective. Right. Are we, I hear a lot of people asking, are we sort of blinded by shiny objects? Um, are we, we're sharing a misspelled tweet or a gif about Scaramucci and while like really important legislation is being passed that we're sort of missing. Do you see any truth to that in the social media world? Kofefe. Yes. Um, Kofefe. Yeah. Look, <laughs> that so, took a uh, day or two. <laughs> yeah. Right. What was that anyway? Um, so look, I think that um, I think we can walk and chew gum at the same time. You know, we can, you know, the things that people call shiny objects actually are have importance of their own. They're not entirely frivolous that they actually do say something important about this president or about our politics or about our time. Uh, and we can also cover, you know, big important policy uh, debates like healthcare, like Afghanistan, like, uh, you know, like immigration and, and tax cuts. And so, you know, I don't think it's a choice. I think we have to do all of those things. And and there's been no shortage of, of important stories in our newspaper about the Russia investigation, for instance. So when anybody says, oh, he's trying to distract the media from the Russia investigation, well, it hasn't. We, we continue to break stories on that, just as the Washington Post does. Well, isn't it more that he's that's distracting the public? Well, you know, again, I, I think as long as we give the public the opportunity to have this information that's going to be up to them to decide what they care about. Um, you know, we can't tell people to care about something they don't care about, but, but I think that we can make sure they have access to it. So I'm curious about Ivanka Trump and the press. What kind of access do you have to her? Well, not a lot. She, uh, she does make a lot of public appearances with her father. She uh, famously sat in the chair for him at the G20 summit when he had to step away but um, she doesn't do press conferences and she doesn't do briefings. So we, uh, uh, you know, we'd like more opportunity to ask her questions. But uh, uh, so far, that's been pretty. So are they limiting her time with the press? On the one hand, obviously, he, he felt strongly enough about wanting her advice to put her on his staff. But on the other hand, I think he recognizes that uh, there's, uh, you know, greater interest in her than any of the other people who are on his staff. And so if she were to say something, then it would get you know, disproportionate attention from his point of view and, and that they uh, probably want to avoid that. How would you analyze Trump's relationship to his children after these months of covering him? Well, look, you know, it's hard to look inside anybody else's family. And one thing I learned covering the Clintons is, you know, you don't really understand uh, how people who are family get along with each other outside of their the public face that they put out there. But I think that if you were to look at what we see in terms of uh, uh, the publicly available information, is a, I think he's very, uh, you know, very much depends on his daughter and his son-in-law for their advice. He does have a lot of uh, respect for it, and he has given them a great deal of authority and autonomy. But that doesn't mean that they necessarily win the day every time. He doesn't necessarily listen to them 
uh, or agree with them uh, on every occasion. So they win fights, they lose fights. Uh, they have a better access, obviously, to the president than anybody else. But um, but they don't, you know, they're not controlling everything uh, in that White House. The years in Moscow covering the beginnings of Putin, did that in any way, looking back now, prepare you for covering Trump and his way of, of talking about facts and stuff? Uh, it prepared me, at least in terms of uh, looking at his relationship with Russia and why it's become so central to his presidency. I, I think that Having spent time in Russia, you learn that some of the things we are writing about as possibilities are very real. The, the idea that the Russians uh, play in a uh, subterranean way to, to intentionally disrupt other countries is very, very plausible to me because of living there for four years and seeing that the way they operate at home and the way that they think about the rest of the world. So in that sense, yeah, it's been very helpful having spent time there because I think that uh, uh, I don't think you can understand this presidency without having an understanding of Russia. Right. And what do you think will come of, of the relationship between Trump and Putin now going forward, if you have a little bit of a crystal ball? Well, it's interesting. Uh, you know, obviously, we're at a point of, of really sour relations between the two countries. Right. Congress has passed legislation mandating sanctions, and the president signed it over his own objections. And the, and the Russians have retaliated by taking away a couple of diplomatic properties and ordering the embassy and consulates there to reduce their staff by 755. So that's a pretty big confrontation. Having said that, neither of the two principals, neither President Putin nor President Trump, have been very vocal uh, about it. And neither one of them has, uh, has gone after the other one in a real public way. So I think that both of them still hold out this idea that they're somehow going to get past this period and find a way to have a rapprochement, to have a, find a way to have a a closer, warmer relationship, despite the political obstacles that are there, uh, particularly in this country. Mm -hmm. In terms of, of being a citizen, a parent, an American, what are the things that concern you most about this administration, having analyzed it so, as much as you do every day? Well, I, my, my first role as a citizen is to be a really good journalist, and I, I try very hard not to, uh, to, to have opinions about the, particularly the, the issues and the people I cover. I mean, my role, as I see it, is to, is to provide people the best information I possibly can and, and, and analysis that's not opinion-based. And, and so I try very hard to keep any personal views out of it. Uh, I think you'd find if you ask my wife or closest friends, they wouldn't be able to tell you, uh, you know, any personal political views I have because I don't really entertain them. I, I, it's very important to me to be neutral. I don't even vote. Uh, I try very hard to evaluate people and the issues I cover on the basis uh, of, of the facts that are in front of us rather than, uh, you know, a personal point of view. Okay, if I, if I ask it like this, then, do you think that the Trump presidency will change journalism and reporting in, in any way that you find scary or, 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 or that you're worried about? Well, obviously, we, you know, they're now talking about a leak investigation. Obviously, anytime any government talks about that, that's a threat to us because it's meant to go after our sources. You know, what, what the government likes to call leaking, you know, we like to call whistleblowing or, you know, providing truthful information that the public has a, a need or a right to know. So anytime a government goes after our sources, they're trying to to shut down the flow of information to us. Now, I understand why they might want to do it, and I understand maybe that they have reasons. But from our point of view, uh, we think that these stories that we publish, sometimes based on 
uh, unnamed sources are important and that they're important for the public. So obviously a concern just any time uh, a government is trying to shut down that source of information. Which this administration obviously is doing more than we're used to. Well, I don't know about that. I, I, you know, people forget the Obama administration prosecuted more leak cases than all the other presidents in American history combined. So, you know, it was, it was, this is something that we've been seeing now for a number of years uh, going back through not just this administration. Mm. Well, that's very interesting. People don't look as much to history and even the history right around the corner as we should maybe. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's because President Obama didn't make as big a public case about it, but while he was uh, he wasn't saying much. His Justice Department was, in fact, prosecuting people, was, in fact, trying to get so- reporters to reveal their sources. One of my colleagues, Jim Ryzen, uh, you know, faced the very real prospect of being put in jail for refusing to tell, uh, you know, his source on an important national security story. So these are these are issues that we've dealt with before January of this year. Uh, but, you know, we look at this as a new, uh, you know, a new moment and a new chapter. And we'll, we'll have to uh, you know, make sure to stand up and, and, and defend our ability to, to report as best we can. What about something like Trump saying that he has complete power to pardon even himself? Yeah, well, he, he does have the complete part, uh, power to pardon uh, certainly anybody else for federal crimes. There's a big debate as to whether he can pardon himself. And, and even if that he could pardon himself, the pardon power does not extend to impeachment. So it's not, you know, complete uh, you know, immunity from uh, accountability. The Congress of the United States ultimately has the power to make that decision if it chose to, if, if there was reason to. At the moment, nobody seems to think that that's a likely possibility. But even the talk of pardons has its limits. Right. The foreign press, do you see any differences at how sort of the foreign press, how we're reporting on Trump over here than we have reported on other presidents? That's a good question. Uh, I mean, I think that it's hard to imagine that the foreign press isn't uh, uh, aware of the opinion polls that we've seen, for instance, by the Pew Research Center that show the drastic change in world opinion about American leadership uh, under this president, right? It's gone from something like 65% or 66% around the world feeling like they could rely on the United States to do the right thing, American leadership do the right thing, down to something in the 20s. And that's a pretty drastic change overnight. So I have to imagine that that shapes the thinking and the and the approach that uh, world media take. It's, it's certainly uh, a president who has made clear that you know he's not interested in uh, what other countries' needs are. He's interested in America first, and that's something that his supporters want him to be focused on. But obviously, there's a cost you would think uh, in terms of how other countries, including their media, might view that. Right. Right. And finally, you spent a lot of time with this book, with 44, with President Obama. Um, you've written about his biggest achievements and his, his biggest sort of failings. And what do you imagine? What do you? What is your analysis as what he's thinking right now, what he's feeling about the situation in his post-presidency? I have to imagine, uh, and he doesn't say it, but right. I have to imagine. <laughs> That's why I'm asking been, you. <laughs> well, yeah, he's been pretty quiet. And look, the reason why he's being pretty quiet is obvious. He doesn't want to take a high profile and give President Trump a target. We know that President Trump likes to have a target, and he's tried to make President Obama one even with his silence. If he were to speak out more publicly, it would be then a battle, say, over health care between Trump and Obama instead of, you know, among the Republicans trying to figure out what to do. So I think he's being very calculating and very strategic in that silence. But you have to imagine that in private, he's pretty frustrated because obviously this is not what he 
spent eight years trying to build, not the country he wanted to build. Uh, even if some of his uh, big accomplishments are preserved, if, if, even if healthcare, for instance, does survive, uh, you know, he would have much, much preferred somebody to come along, even a Republican like Jeb Bush, who was not so determined to undo the things that he, President Obama, had done. This president, President Trump, seems very, very focused on uh, specifically undoing things that his predecessor had done rather than simply moving on uh, with programs of his own. Right. Thank you so much for your time. I realize that you are every morning you're waking up to new stories that you have to go and you have to run through. <laughs> and, and this was very much, and thank you very much for the book. Oh, not at all. I'm glad you uh, uh, took the time. Thank you for, for your interest and for, uh, for a great interview. I had a lot of fun with it. Thank you so much to Peter Baker. You can follow him on Twitter at Peter Baker NYT. And his new book is Obama, The Call of History. And thank you so much for listening to Pop Culture Confidential. Follow us on Twitter at PodPopCulture and visit us at PopCultureConfidential.com. And please take the time to rate us on iTunes or SoundCloud. That really helps us out. This show was edited by Tom Hansen, theme music by Carl Boy, and produced by René Wittestedt and myself. I'm Christina Jörling-Biro. Please join us next week. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I, I hope so, man. I'm tired. <laughs> who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I, I, I've never done it. <laughs> I know, right?